We read the verses 14 through 30. Jesus is speaking here about the kingdom of heaven in different parables. In verse 14, he says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country, who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his own ability. And immediately he went on a journey. Then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them, and he made another five talents. And likewise, he who had received two gained two more also. But he who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. After a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So he who had received five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I have gained five more talents beside them. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You are faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. He also, who had received two talents, came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I have gained two more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. But his Lord answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers, and at my coming I would have received back my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have abundance. But from him who, ha- who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So far, reading from Matthew, let us turn to the first letter of Peter, chapter 4. Our reading is, starts at verse 1, and our text will begin at verse 7. So we'll read verse 1 through to verse 11. So 1 Peter, one Peter chapter 4, beginning of verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles, 
when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. And then begins our text. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling, as each one has received the gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, and that in all the things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So far, a reading from God's holy word. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. The believers to whom the Apostle Peter is, is writing, they're suffering. Their lives have become very difficult because of their faith. Many of these believers had to flee for their lives because of persecution. And they were persecuted because they put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. These are people who, Christians who had to flee from their homes. And the reason for that is because they were no longer tolerated by their neighbors. And so we know that persecution, although it wasn't yet throughout the whole Roman Empire, nevertheless, we know that persecution was already common in the days of the apostles as you read about some of the persecution that took place in the book of Acts, as Paul and others were going about bringing the gospel throughout different parts of the world. We read, for example, that people in different towns and cities would stir up the local authorities, that they might throw the apostles and they might throw the, the believers into prison. Suspicion of the Christians was so common uh, that many believers even had to flee in order to escape the persecution in their daily lives. And the reason for that is that the pagans, the unbelievers, also saw very clearly that the Christian life was a life that was quite different, it was much different from their own way of life, and they felt very much threatened as a result. Peter writes in chapter 4, verse 4, in the first part of this chapter, that the, pag uh, that the pagans are surprised, he writes. They're surprised that you Christians do not join them in reckless and wild living. And therefore, whether they do, they heap abuse upon you because of your different lifestyle. Right? A believer who comes uh, to know the Lord Jesus Christ is no longer attracted, Peter says, to a life of debauchery, 
to a life of lust, to a life of drunkenness, to a life of orgies and all kinds of carousing. Right? That empty way of life, pursuing the lusts and the desires of our sinful heart, gives way now to a, a new way of life. One in which there's now great soberness. One in which we realize more and more that there's more to life than the empty ways of our pagan culture and the way that, our, and that unbelievers are living their lives. Back in chapter 2 of this letter, in verse 17, there Peter commands the believers to show respect to everyone. He says you're to show respect both to believers and unbelievers. He says you're also to honor the emperor. Can you imagine that? Honoring the emperor when it is the authorities who are, many of the authorities who are persecuting you and making your life miserable. But then he also says about the church, he says, but as, as believers, as members of the church of Christ, love the family of believers. And so what's clear is that wherever the, the, the message of the gospel is being proclaimed, the Lord is bringing about a division in this world. A division between those who want to serve themselves as unbelievers on the one hand, and on the other hand you have the church which is the, indeed the very family of God that Peter speaks about here. And so there are two families in this world, the one that, that serves the Lord God and the other that rejects God. And the way that each family lives is quite different from the other. The one family pursues a life of reckless living, drunkenness, carousing. And the other family pursues a life of soberness and self-control. The one, pursues, the one pursues their lust, the lust of their hearts, and the other wants to show love to their neighbor. The one revels in orgies, and the other is busy in showing hospitality to those who are in need. The one will exploit other people for their own gain, and the other family takes delight in using their gifts for the ministry in which they help those who are in need. And so earlier... Peter has written how believers are to live respectfully with, yes, the people in the world. But here in this text, later on in this letter, Peter now gives us instruction how we as believers must live together as the very family of God. And within the family of God, the new attitude is to be an attitude of service in which we care for one another. We care for God's people. The church must be a place where people feel at home. Where people indeed love one another deeply. And they love one another deeply by praying for each other. And they love each other deeply by using the gifts that the Lord has given to support one another in love. And so this afternoon I proclaim to you God's word under this theme. The Lord's instruction for living together in the family of God. So our theme, the Lord's instruction for living together in the family of God. Under that theme, we'll look at three things. First of all, it is a community. The church is a community, busy in prayer. Secondly, we are to be a community that loves each other deeply. And thirdly, we are to be a community that serves each other. Peter begins our text saying... Remember that the end of all things is near. 
In other words, he's saying it's not going to be very long before the world will come to an end. The day is quickly approaching when the Lord Jesus will return from heaven and when he will judge the whole earth. And so Christian believers, since the days of the Lord Jesus, have always lived in this expectation that the end can come at any moment. It can come at any day. In fact, the Lord may even return today. But we know that Christians are not the only ones who are living in the expectation of the end. You may remember a few months ago, October, November, that time frame, that world leaders met together in in Europe and Scotland in order to discuss the biggest and the most important topic uh, that we need to be dealing with, we're told, and that was climate change. The fear is that if the world and society doesn't do something very soon and very quickly about the climate, that the world soon is going to perish, even within a matter of uh, 10 to 15 years. What it reveals to us is uh, that not only is the Christians, but even people in the world live with this expectation that the end is indeed near. Now, Peter here wants to tell us how as God's people we are to live with that expectation knowing that the end is near. He says, the end of all things is near, therefore, and then he continues on, and he says, and therefore, this is how you should live your life. And so what becomes very clear is that a believer reacts uh, to this understanding that the, word, that the end is near differently from somebody who does not believe. Peter says to us as Christians, he says, you need to be clear-minded. You need to be self-controlled. Or you can also say, you need to be in your right mind and you need to be sober. Well, that contrasts the way in which the pagans deal with the reality of facing the end of the world. Right? Pagans, really, they don't know how uh, to face uh, the end when it is coming. They're desperately trying to stop the end from coming uh, by taking control of the climate, they think, and, and therefore they can control the end, but they're desperately afraid uh, of the end should it come. And so you can say that pagans, unbelievers, they're not in their right mind. They are confused because they are living in fear and, and they kind of panic about what's going to happen in a few years. They don't know. They have no answers for what's going to happen at the end. So the question here is, and so how do do they then also deal with this uncertainty in in their lives? Well, we know that no matter whether you know or don't know how to deal with it, you're going to find a way in which you're going to learn to deal with it. Because you have to deal with the reality that this might happen. Well, you know that in, as far as unbelievers are concerned, most don't want to think about it. So what do they do? Well, they cover it up, as Peter says a few verses earlier in verse 3. They cover it up. They cover it up by living in a life of debauchery and of lust. Right? They're, they're busy living, in, they're engaging in wild living. They're busy in revelry and partying. They resort to drunkenness and carousing. And so what they're doing is they're pretending that the end doesn't really matter. We'll just cover up the troubles of life with our drunkenness by smoking or by taking drugs, by smoking weed. And, and notice here when every time we come up to Owen Sound and you go along the highway, and each little town that we come to, the newest store, and then each of these little uh, towns, 
is a cannabis store. You know where the focus of our society is right now. They're pursuing the things that will give them pleasure and the things that will kind of put aside, put away the reality that indeed the end is coming. But the Christian life, Peter says, is different. As believers, you are to to live in your right mind, which means that in your mind you fully accept, yes, you fully accept that the end is coming and that you're okay. You're okay with that. You don't need to get drunk to cover up that reality. No, you want to remain sober so that you may indeed be ready when the end does come. And so Peter says, you want to be in your right mind and sober. Why? So that you can pray. Right? You can't pray if you're not sober. No drunken person, no person that's out of their mind is able to pray. You need to be sober-minded in order that you might be able to pray. Remember the Lord Jesus said to his disciples on the night when he was betrayed, when they were in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, pray. Pray so that you may not fall into temptation. And so when the Lord Jesus himself that night, when he was facing the end of his life and he knew the end was imminent, they were told that his suffering and his pain was very great. In fact, it was so great that, that the sweat came out of him like great drops of blood. What did Christ do? Christ did not cover up his suffering. He didn't try to ignore his, his trouble by getting drunk. He didn't go out and say, let's go party with his disciples. No, instead, what did he do? With a sober mind, he, he goes aside and he begins to pray to his Father. And beloved, when when you're suffering pain and when you're dealing with troubles in your life, well, we know that when we forget about God that it is so easy to lose our mind that we begin to, to feel desperate and anxious. And perhaps you had those moments also in your life when, when you just went into a panic. And you know when you get into a panic because you just don't know how to deal with things, uh, you're not thinking very straight anymore. You're not very sober, so to speak. then it also becomes impossible when we're not in our right mind. Impossible to pray. Because we're instead, we're desperately seeking all kinds of ways to solve the problems that we're being faced with. What happens is we resort to human solutions. Often the solutions that really cannot take away our troubles, but we try anything just in our desperation. But when you keep your right mind... When you think about what God did for you in Jesus Christ, then in those moments you also know where indeed you can go. You know that our help, and we confess that every Sunday, we confess it twice before we begin the worship service, we confess that our, our help is in the Lord our God. That means, beloved, as God's family, that, that you must always be busy in prayer. So that we fall down on our knees and we turn to what we know is the only source of help. And that is the Lord our God. And yes, we know that the end is near. But with the Lord I do not need to fear. Yes, the troubles of life are hard and they can be painful and the suffering is real. But yet the Lord is my ever-present help. 
And the Lord doesn't promise that He's going to take away the pain in, in your and my life. But what He does promise is, I am here with you today. And therefore, beloved, you can pray. You may pray to Him because you know that the Lord is near. You know that the Lord is the one who also hears your prayers in the midst of your desperation. You're not alone. And therefore, beloved, also as family of God, we pray for one another. Because, you know, we, we see our own suffering. And it's so easy to get caught up in our own sufferings. But when you're within a family and you get to know one another, then you also begin to see that you're not the only one who's suffering. You begin to see the suffering in the life of your brothers, in the life of your sisters. And, and if you're in tune to what's going on in the world, then you also will see the suffering that's going on in, in the community around you. And I think especially in this time of COVID, that we see indeed how society responds to that. And we see also the suffering, which also causes us to react to, to, the, to the world with, with mercy and with grace. We realize that they really have no answer, and that they need also the gospel message. Yet the reality is when we are facing the troubles of life, we often feel so helpless because we realize I just don't have the power. don't have the power to, to remove the suffering from my own life and I don't have the power to, serve, to remove the suffering from the lives of others or the suffering from the lives of my loved ones. We see them suffer and we stand there helpless and we want to do something, but there's nothing that we can really do for them. Other than that we may then indeed pray to the Lord our God and we pray for them. And we beseech our gracious God, God care for all those whom we deeply love as our brothers and our sisters in the Lord. Beloved, the church is a place where as a community of God's people we pray for one another. We lay one another's needs before the Lord our God. We beseech our God that He might remember also His people that He might provide for the needs of His people also in the, in the time of their greatest need. Well then, as God's family, Peter says you're also called to love one another deeply. Peter writes, above all, two words, very important words, above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sin. And so prayer is important, very important. But Peter says, above all, love one another. And Peter's words here reflect also the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, uh, where Paul speaks about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and he says that the greatest of these gifts is what? The greatest of these gifts is love. Above all, love one another deeply. My beloved, who loves well? Yes, who loves well? You might think to yourself, you know, uh, I love well. There are a lot of people that I love and that I deeply care for in the church. But notice what Peter says. Peter says, love each other deeply. And if you think about that, you say, oh yeah, but, but there is this brother, this sister over there that I have a grudge against. I don't speak to him or her. 
There's that person over there that has hurt me very deeply and I'm still so angry in my heart at that person. And there's this other person over there that, uh, that who is obnoxious and I just can't feel anything good for him or her. Or there's a sister who, who seems to always get all the attention and, and I'm so jealous. And, and, and you can multiply that list and you can think of things in your own heart about fellow brothers and sisters in your own life. You need to ask ourselves, do we truly love each other deeply as we're commanded to do that? Yes, we can love some deeply. But can we love each and every one deeply? See, the reality is that we fail so miserably. And yet, this is the kind of community that we're called to be as God's people. So we need to ask, so how can we become the kind of church community that Peter calls us to become? How can we be a church family where we experience the love of God for each other deeply? How can we be a family of God where, where people today may may feel like strangers, come to feel at home where they are indeed loved here within the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. I know my own congregation, I ask the, the question, if, if you're coming here and you're worshiping for us you know, the first time, or perhaps you've been coming already for, uh, for a period of time, what should you expect to find in the church community like this one? You see, beloved, the church must be a place where God's people love one another deeply, where we care for each other, and where we're ready to, to help each other. But the reality is that when you bring together a community of people who struggle with sin, there are going to be problems, many problems. Why? Because we often react to each other in different situations in sinful ways. Our first reaction is to react in a sinful way rather than to act in love. That's why Peter adds these words. Not only does he say love each other deeply, then he adds these words. He says, because. Because love covers a multitude of sins. You see, Peter is realistic enough to understand that as God's people, we struggle with sin. We will at times, we will say hurtful things to other people. Not only that people will do hurtful things to us, but more often than that we do, and we say hurtful things to others. There are times that, that we will do things that will make somebody feel as if we have stabbed them in the back and that somehow we have betrayed them. You see, beloved, we, we don't come to God's church family because... Everybody in the family is perfect and so good. But we come as together as God's family because here we begin and here we can expect to begin to experience the love of God at work in the hearts of His people. And so the question we need to ask ourselves, is there indeed hope? Is there indeed hope that we can grow in this love as Peter commands us? And the answer is absolutely. But you also need to understand this, beloved. It will not happen if you depend upon yourself. 
And if you depend upon your own ability. Because growth, growth and love for one another is only possible in the Lord Jesus Christ. No, you cannot love one another until you first experience, until you first experience the love of Christ Jesus in your own life. You see, we first need to understand what Jesus came to do for us and for our lives. And we know that the Lord Jesus, when He came to this world, He came to show His love for us. But you also need to understand that for the Lord Jesus to come and to love us, it was not just a matter of Jesus simply saying, oh, I love these people. No, Jesus had to cover over a multitude, a multitude of sins in us. You see, beloved, we do not sit here in these pews this afternoon because we somehow think that we are better than other people. But I pray that you're here because you want to experience Christ's forgiving love for you. Or you're here because you want to know about His forgiving love if you're only coming to understand a little about the gospel right now in your life. Because before Christ, we were all living without hope in our lives. We felt together with the rest of mankind, indeed, that the end is near. But although we might, felt, might have felt somehow that the end is near, yet we did not have any hope if the end should come today. But Christ came. And He came and He comes and He promises, I will cover over a multitude of, of sins in your life. And he will do that on the basis of the blood that he sheds for us there on the cross. And so Peter says we are to love each other deeply. And beloved, that word deeply carries the idea of, of, of stretching like an elastic band. Right? We can say that Christ's love is so great that it keeps on stretching and stretching to cover over all of my sins. And yet, isn't the reality that we often think about Christ's love as a love that is limited? Is love Christ is a love that is somehow finite? But the answer is no. Because every time that you cry out to the Lord God, Lord, forgive my sins, what happens is Christ's love stretches only further to cover them. Beloved, if, if you know how great the love of Christ is for you, then in His love it is possible to love one another deeply again. We love one another. Not because we are perfect. Not because we're worthy of that love of one another. But because we care for each other's people who have all been bought with the precious blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. If Christ's love was great enough, to purchase our lives, then surely we should be willing to then also love one another, whatever the circumstances may be. And so, it, and so indeed it is Christ's love that makes it possible for us to love one another. Now here I need to make a comment about what it means to cover over a multitude of sins because that expression has also been used in, in a wrong way. It's happened in the church that there are members of the church who have fallen into sin and have caused incredible pain in the lives of, of others. 
Think, for example, of, of abuse. Somebody might be guilty of physical abuse, emotional abuse, or even sexual abuse that has caused so much devastation and pain in, in the hearts of a child of God. And how do we deal with that as the church of our Lord Jesus Christ? And too often, very quickly, after a quick confession, the sin is covered up and everyone goes on as if nothing has happened. Beloved, perhaps you've heard the expression cheap grace. And that expression refers to something like that where very quickly we just kind of cover up the sin and we say, you know, everything's okay again. What we need to understand is that Peter is not saying that the church should be a place where we cover up sin. That's not what he says here. What he says is that when sin occurs within the church, here within the church, here we can be open to each other about our sins. The church should be a place where it is safe for us to be able to also confess our shortcomings, that we can lay open our hearts to one another. Because we love one another deeply. And so a church may not cover up sin and pretend that as if it doesn't happen. But within the church, sin must be dealt with properly. Because, beloved, sin that is not dealt with properly becomes like a cancer that destroys the body. But when it is dealt with properly, when it is confessed, then it is also possible to again restore broken relationships so that love can again function properly. You see, it's impossible to experience Christ's love if you do not confess the depth of your own sin. And if you're not truly sorry for the way that you have been disobedient and been rebellious against the Lord, your God. And the same is true also in the relationships that you have with one another. If you cannot, you cannot restore a relationship that you have broken by your sin or by some careless word that you may have spoken or some act that you may have done against a brother or a sister until, until you can truly confess from your heart that you have indeed hurt a brother or a sister through your sin, or perhaps through your careless attitude. And beloved, when this confession comes from the heart, then indeed love can stretch out in such a way that we truly love one another again. Love for each other must be living among us. We must show it to one another every day again. And it's a love that in Christ Jesus, beloved, is a love that can continue to grow for one another. A love that can continue to grow in your marriage relationships, one that can grow in your family relationships, one that can grow also in the relationships within the body of the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we reveal this love by serving each other, which is the third point of, Paul's, of Peter's message. Here in this third point, we're dealing with the largest part of the text, verses 9 through 11. So I only have time to touch on, on a few key points, but important points. Verse 10. Verse 10 says that each one should use whatever gift he has received. You know what Peter says? He says, each one of God's children has received gifts from God. In other words, there's no child, not a single child of God who can say, I don't have any gifts. Now, it may be true that we may not always know what those gifts are. 
But Peter's point is, he says, but we have all received gifts from God. That's simply a reality. You see, when, when the Lord comes and He gives you the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit comes and He opens your heart, the Spirit of God always comes bearing gifts. Peter says at the end of verse 10 that we have received this grace of God, that is these gifts, in its various forms. In other words, we don't all in the church, we don't all have the same gifts. Right? The Spirit gives different gifts to, to different people. Paul compares these gifts of the Spirit to the human body. He says our body, he reminds us, he says, you know, our human bodies, we all have different parts. We have hands and we have feet and we have eyes and we have a mouth, we have nose, we have ears. And so as a body, as our bodies have all these different parts, all these different members, so also the members of the church, they all have different gifts. And we need all those gifts, Peter says, in order that the church of Christ might be able to function properly. Now, Peter doesn't give us a list of gifts here, but he kind of divides the gifts into it almost seems to be two different categories. The one category is the category of speaking the very words of God, and the other category is the gifts of giving or of serving. Of serving. Peter may have in mind, as some have suggested, that he's dealing here with the work of the elders who speak the word of God, and on the other hand, he's dealing with the deacons who serve in a more practical way. What we do know is that the Spirit gives some gifts, uh, gives some people the gifts of teaching. Others, He gives the gifts of prayer. Others may have the gift of being able to give encouragement and to be able to comfort others. Others have the gift of being able to give wise counsel. There are others who may enjoy the gift of hospitality that He writes about in verse 9. Others who may have the gift of being able to, to serve somebody by, by helping them by cleaning their, their home. Others who may be able to serve by, by serving meals. Others who may be able to child mind. And others who are able to do errands for other people. What Peter says here is that we are to faithfully administer these gifts of God. And to administer the gifts literally is to be stewards of these gifts. And a steward in the scriptures, a steward is a servant who takes care of his master's possessions. In other words, these are not his gifts, these are not his belongings. No, a steward is called to take care of the gifts that belong to his master. And so the point here is that we are called to be stewards in God's church of all the gifts that the Lord God has given to us. They're his gifts. And here, remember, we read together the parable that the Lord Jesus taught about the master. The master who gave different gifts or talents to his servants before he went away on a long journey. And at the end of that long journey, the master returned again. And what did he do? He called his servants to himself and he asked them, so what have you done with the gifts that I gave to you? What have you done with my talents? And the first who came, and they had indeed increased the talents. But the last servant had done nothing with his gift. And what did the master do? The master became angry, and the master punished him. And so the point that the Lord Jesus made is that when the Lord gives to us gifts... No matter what those gifts might be, whether they're many gifts, whether they're just one gift, whether it's a small gift or a great gift, we are called to use those gifts out of thankfulness. These talents, these abilities are called gifts because God in His grace, He gives them to us 
as a gift. Right? We, don't, we do not deserve any gifts. We do not deserve any talents that the Lord God gives to us. The only reason that the Lord gives you these gifts, beloved, is because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the Lord Jesus who has earned these blessings for you through His sacrifice on the cross. And because of Christ's saving work, we now are richly blessed as the Spirit pours out the gifts of God upon us. And if you are indeed richly blessed, why then in your heart, you then also want to use those gifts to serve the Lord and to serve one another. You know, if the Lord Jesus came and He served us without grumbling, if He was even willing to, to sacrifice His whole life on the cross for us, then the least we can do is also have an attitude in which we want to serve our Lord Jesus, and we want to serve also God's people within the family of God. Right? When, when, when you serve others, Something we need to keep in mind, too, is that we serve others not because we want to make ourselves feel better as a result. Right? There's always this danger that, that believers use God's gifts, and we use those gifts for our own glory, trying to boost ourselves up in the eyes of others. Paul, for example, warns against those who are boasting about the gift of speaking in tongues in, in 1 Corinthians 12. Remember, for, for many believers in the Corinthian church, that gift of speaking in tongues, they believe, was a gift that set them above the other believers in the church, as if somehow God had blessed them more than others who had not received that gift of speaking in tongues. See, God's gifts, beloved, are never about making me feel good about myself. It's always about thinking how I can use also these gifts of the Lord God for the sake of my brother, for the sake of my sister who is in need. The reality is that I must become less and my brother and my sister must always become more in my eyes. And that's tough. Because we do not naturally do that because we like to think of ourselves as being better than others. As faithful stewards, we want to take the gifts that God gives to us and we want to use them that we might serve each other here in the family of God within the church. But the church is a family where we help each other, in a place where we can expect that we will assist each other to the best of our abilities. But someone asks, so how do I know what gifts? How do I know what gifts the Lord has given to me? Perhaps the elders at a home visit may, may ask you that, uh, that, that question. What gifts do you have? And how are you using those gifts? It's a good question, but it's also one that you need to handle with care. Because the danger with this question is that we try to look inside of ourselves and, and try to figure out what gifts the Lord has given to me. But the reality is that you will never find your answer that way. Because the Lord doesn't reveal our gifts in that way. He doesn't come to us and say, speak to us in our hearts and say, you know what, I give you this gift and I give you that gift and I give you that gift. No, the Lord comes and He reveals our gifts to us through our doing, through our working. We figure out our gifts by helping others wherever there is need and wherever the Lord places a need before us. 
And what often happens is that we discover gifts that we thought we never had as we reach out to help others. And perhaps you might be somebody who doesn't really like to be in the social limelight. And so maybe you offer to help somewhere in, in some organization or some event in the church, you offer to help out in the kitchen because you feel kind of safe over there in the work that you're doing. But you know what happens when you were serving in the kitchen? Uh, you begin to, to meet people anyway. And as you begin to meet people, you may begin to realize, you know what, I don't mind. I, love, I like speaking with other people. And as you speak with other people, you begin to realize you have the ability to be able to listen to them. And people are willing to, to, to speak to you and to, to talk to you. Or that you may have the ability to be able to encourage people or to be able to comfort them. And, and so often we, the gifts that we have become exposed and we begin to recognize them as we indeed are busy helping and we're busy in the lives of our brothers and in, in the lives of our sisters. Also keep this in mind. That gifts need to be developed. Right? You cannot just become a good teacher just like that. It usually takes a person years to develop the ability to teach well. And therefore, don't say too quickly, I don't have a gift for this or a gift for that. But instead, ask the Lord that the Lord might help you to develop those gifts. And especially that He might help you to develop the gifts that you need when you're faced with an urgent situation and you're thrown into a situation where there's a brother or there's a sister who is in need. Then you might indeed also cry out to the Lord, Lord, you see this person who is in need and who needs help. And you have placed this person on my path, so please give me the wisdom, give me the strength that I need, that I might indeed help this brother, that I may be able to help this sister. But I think what often stands in the way of using our gifts is simply fear. Fear. Right? We're afraid. We may be afraid to speak to others because what's going to happen if I say the wrong things or whether they might not even want to listen to me. Or we're afraid to help somebody because we're afraid that we might fail and we might not give them the help that they really need. Right? We, we feel vulnerable and, and we find ourselves often in places where we're uncomfortable and we like to kind of stay away from those uncomfortable places. And that's why Peter then also writes in our text this, this. He says, if anyone serves, he should do it through the strength God provides. Do it through the strength God provides. Here you come back again to prayer. And you say to the Lord, Lord, I'm not strong. I know my weaknesses. I know my vulnerabilities. I know my comfort level. But you, Lord, you, you call me. Also in this situation, you call me to serve. The Lord, give me the courage that I might be able to serve. Give me the wisdom to speak the words of encouragement that is needed in this situation. Give me the wisdom that I know what I should do in order to help this brother, to help this sister. And beloved, the reality is that when you step forward in faith, and remember, when you step forward in faith, it means this. It means that you don't know yet whether you're able to help that person. You don't know yet whether you have the abilities, whether you have the gifts that is needed. 
Because faith trusts that the Lord God is there and the Lord God is the one who will be there for you and He will encourage you. He'll give you what you need. Right? If, if you go in a situation, you already know what to do. You already know uh, how to deal with the situation. You're going in there with, uh, with strength. But when you go forward in faith, it means you're trusting in the Lord God. That the Lord God will indeed be there for you. You trust that the Lord, that the Spirit will also give to you then the strength that you need. So we don't help because we think that we're better, that we can indeed make a difference. We help because we're called to do so, and we trust that the Lord God will also bless what, what I'm doing. And so when we reach out, and we may feel vulnerable, we might feel out of our comfort zone. But beloved, remember that you never stand alone. The Lord God is always there with you. And understand this, there are going to be times that you will fail. Yes, you will fail. Times when your help will not seem to be good enough. Perhaps even times when your help was going to be rejected. But that's okay. It's okay. For the Lord, He teaches us through our failures. That while we are weak, Yet He is the one who is strong. He will also use our weakness in order to further His goal and His glory. And so I may fail, but the Lord, He will use it for good. And through the troubles and through the failures, the Lord and also causes you and I, He causes us to, 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 to grow. So that our gifts may abound to His praise and to His glory. Ultimately, beloved, it is never about our successes. It's never about making ourselves look good. But it's always about being busy for the glory of the Lord our God. What a wonderful God we have. That He will use you and me, weak human beings, that He might bring glory to His own name. He is great. And therefore, beloved, He is worthy of all praise. Amen.